Um, as we've said, today I'm going to be covering uh, the gospel of Luke. And um, a number of years ago, I actually preached through the gospel of Luke. I've got one message to do it today. And uh, back in September of 2013, I began going through the gospel of Luke, 12 messages that covered the first eight chapters. Then I slowed down. Um, chapters 9 through 19 was 36 messages. Uh, the journey to Jerusalem, as you're going to see, that's a real central section in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is training his disciples to carry on his ministry. It's really probably the most intense section of Jesus's teaching on discipleship. Related to that, I want to let you know, in terms of not only Jesus's training for discipleship, but us taking that seriously, um, Downline, which is a discipleship training ministry, is having a preview night. It's a uh, Downline is nine months, and they're about three quarters of the way through all of that now. Um, but they're having a preview night on February the 29th. Uh, Tim Lund, a great Bible teacher, has been a Bible teacher in Little Rock. He's taught here a few times, uh, pastors a church now in California. He's going to be covering the book of Romans, and it would be just a fantastic opportunity for you to hear the book of Romans covered, but also to get an exposure to what's going on in downline. So I really want to encourage you to uh, take advantage of that. If you've been thinking about it, wondering about it, hearing about it, and wondering what it uh, is all about, that's a great opportunity for you. Um, the Gospel of Luke, though, doesn't stop in chapter 29, so I kept going, or in 19. So I kept going in chapter 19 and went through chapter 24, uh, the passion of Christ with his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and, and teaching his disciples. Um, that was another 22 messages. Put this all together. I preached 70 total messages on Luke. Um, I'm going to do that in one day. I'm going to do that here in the next uh, 35 minutes. So um, hold on. Um, I've got a few resources to try to facilitate some of this. There's a, uh, a, an article out there by Daryl Bach, like I've been doing for all the Gospels. I'll do with John again on interpreting Luke. There's something there by Dan Wallace on the occasion and purpose of Luke. Uh, one of the things that Luke does is he highlights the involvement of women in his ministry, and there's an article there by Bobby Kelly on that. There are three more things that are out at the Connection Center. They're on the website. Uh, one of them focuses on the purpose of Luke and how he really focuses in that center journey to Jerusalem section on the apostles in training and how he's focused on training them. Uh, an article on the resurrection by Daryl Bach, and then one uh, on the background, if you're a history nerd, uh, this one's for you, on the Herodian dynasty, um, because the, the Herod at the beginning of Luke and the Herod at the end of Luke, they're different Herods, uh, and so it kind of points all of that history back together. Um, as I've been saying, Jesus's life is a real life. We know dates for it. In all likelihood, um, there's some options here, but I'm pretty convinced that Jesus would have been born uh, in either December of 5 BC or January of 4 BC. That puts him at the temple in 8 AD when he was 12 years old. Um, his ministry begins in 30 AD, about a three and a half year ministry until his crucifixion. And then the Passion Week, which all of the gospel writers get to and spend a, a lot of time on that last week, um, it would have been the spring of 33 AD. Um, so we're not quite there, but we're coming up on that time of year. And so I put these up there because these are real dates, because Jesus was a, a real historical figure. These are true stories that we can date. And in particular, Luke does some things, you're going to see, Luke does some things to tie this in with real dating and uh, giving you truly more history than any of the other gospel writers. The other thing that we've been doing as we have been uh, going through the gospels is recognizing 
that each gospel writer takes the life of Christ and frames it in a particular theological way. And so um, we're going to see what Luke does with that. But what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all doing is they're, they're picking from this broad scope of what Jesus' life is. And so uh, I'm going to ask you to stand again. We're going to review this. We'll review it again next week. Um, the life of Jesus in 12 steps. We've got some hand motions for this. If you're new, um, just watch the people around you. Uh, we've got uh, three sets of hand motions, uh, four motions for each one of these. The preparation for Jesus' ministry that starts off with his birth. We're going to hold him as a baby. Then we're going to baptize him and then do the temptation, be subtle and uh, be uh, sinister as you're tempting, and then some teaching, okay? So we've got um, hand motions for each one of those. Let's, let's do those four right now uh, with your hands and your voices, okay? One, two, three. Birth, baptism, temptation, teaching. Okay, then there's three and a half years of Jesus's ministry. The first year is obscurity, and then there's a year of popularity and then some opposition during that entire three years, he's training his disciples. So let's put that together, okay? We've got obscurity, popularity, opposition, training. When he makes it to Jerusalem, there is a trial, then the crucifixion, and the resurrection, and the ascension, okay? Let's put all of that together, all 12 steps, okay? Ready? Um, your, your, your hands and your voices all together. Ready? One, two, three. Birth, baptism, temptation, teaching, obscurity, popularity, opposition, training, trial, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. Great. Uh, you guys have got it. I, you, next week, you're up on the stage, okay? Come on. You can have a seat. Um, why are these gospels being written? I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, Daryl Bach highlights two key things that are happening. There's a growing tension for Jews and Christians. They're, they're coming under more and more persecution. And the aging of the original generation of Jesus followers, those first eyewitnesses, are getting older. Both of these factors contribute to the move to record, not merely pass on orally, Jesus' story and his teaching. They have been passed on orally. These, these people were telling the stories and they were they're circulating them. Um, storytelling was their national pastime. They knew how to, how to tell stories, how to listen to stories. But as time moves on, um, 30 years down the road, what's happening is these disciples are recognizing maybe Jesus isn't coming back. We need to set down and get these messages written down. And that's happening in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And particularly for Luke, he's going to research and interview the eyewitnesses. So our question really is this. How, what, is, what is Luke's particular work with what we just reviewed? Why is Luke selecting and arranging the things that he does in the way that he does. Um, and I would, I'm going to just say this. Luke is a friend of Paul. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. So Luke, not one of the original 12, Paul, not one of the original 12, but Luke as a historian is writing the gospel of Jesus with research to support this Gentile mission of Paul. Luke is showing how Jesus's mission started, and he did include Gentiles and the outcasts, the non-Jewish people. Matthew, that was all Jewish. Luke is really going to focus on this ministry that's going outside the Jewish community. The other thing that I really need to remind you of is that 
Luke and Acts go together. I was so proud of my wife yesterday when I asked her, I said, how many messages do you think I did on Luke? Um, and her number was way smaller. Many of you were like 3,000. Um, it was 70s, a lot of messages for a book. But when I asked Dawn that, she said this, do you mean Luke Acts? I was like, yes, that's my baby. She knew that Luke and Acts go together. And they do. Luke and Acts are a twin work. They, they, they go together, and real quickly I can do it in this way. Luke looks back into the Old Testament and says, Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament predictions. He's the savior of the world. He trained his disciples for a mission, and Acts shows how they accomplish that mission and how we are the ones who are supposed to continue that mission to get the gospel around the world. That's Luke and Acts together. They go together. Now, none of you should go out and order this book, but there's, there is a book um, written in the third century by a guy named Diogenes Laertius. Now, Luke, obviously, is writing hundreds of years before this. Luke isn't dependent on Laertius. But Laertius wrote this book called Lives of Eminent Philosophers. And in that, he covers, 60, he covers 82 different philosophers, Plato, Socrates, Epimenides, all these guys, and six of them, he does kind of a Luke-Acts thing where he goes, here's the life of the philosopher and what he taught, and then he covers their followers and how they continued teaching what he taught. Um, it's possible that, that Laertius is actually following the example of Paul to go, here's a volume on the, the originator, and then here's showing you how his followers, either faithfully or not so faithfully, continued that. The point being, Luke and Acts go together. They're an A-B, first Luke, second Luke. First Luke, Jesus. Second Luke, Jesus' followers. That's what's going on in this book. The book has some really interesting characteristics. Mark Strauss talk, puts it this way. Historical notes and dating with references to secular and religious leaders. Luke gives us most of the historical dating that lets us know exactly when his ministry st started, when all of these things are happening, because Luke is much more of a historian. He's trying to date this for his Gentile audience. The universality of the gospel message, it's for all people. Again, that's a huge theme in all of this. References to Jesus as Savior, Christ, Lord, and Prophet. Old Testament allusions, especially to Isaiah, and the promises of salvation for all people. When, when Luke refers to things in the Old Testament, he's grabbing Old Testament messages that talk about God's work for all people. Um, there's an emphasis on promise and fulfillment, these promises in the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus. The presence of today of salvation in the words and deeds of Jesus. Salvation's come today. We've been expecting it for so long, <laughs> but now it's here. Jesus' special concern for outsiders, the poor, sinners, Samaritans. Um, this is true both in, in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts. Jesus... Luke really shows Jesus is for everybody. Um, there's the theme of reversal of fortunes. The rich become poor and vice versa. Even as you're going to see in the Magnificent of, of, of Mary in chapter 1, she's going to refer to th this reversal of he's brought kings down. He's exalted the lowly. There's a special emphasis placed on women and their needs and their concerns. Women are the first witnesses of the resurrection, which is super surprising in the New Testament. The coming of the Holy Spirit is a sign of the new age. Luke 3.16 is as important as John 3.16. Um, John 3.16 is, is God loved the world, and, and he gave Jesus as the way of salvation. Luke 3.16 says, yes, and when Jesus came, he provides the Spirit 
for us to live our lives. Um, there's references to Jesus's prayer life, his teaching on prayer, a lot of emphasis on prayer in the book of Luke. References to praise, joy, celebration, because all of this awaiting of salvation that we've talked about as we went through the Old Testament, none of it was coming through leaders or promises or laws or any of those things. Now it's finally arrived in Jesus and they're celebrating that. The importance of Jerusalem and Jesus' extended journey there, that is the journey to Jerusalem becomes really central. And the emphasis on the present reign of Christ following his ascension. Because what happens in Luke and Acts is Jesus accomplished salvation. He told us to take that through um, to, to the world. As we do that, Christ is ascended in heaven, interceding for us. We are supposed to be taking the message, but he is interceding for us as we do that. Um, how significant Luke is, the, this slide is really just intended to show you, Luke is huge. Luke is the longest book in the New Testament, Matthew's second, Acts is third. So if you put Luke and Acts together, it's 27% of the New Testament. Luke and Acts together is over a quarter of the New Testament. Now, most people would have thought, well, Paul writes the most. No, Luke, by far, by far, Luke writes the most in the New Testament. Daryl Bach says, the third gospel is the longest of the four gospels. It has a mix of teaching, miracle, and parable. Luke gives us more parables than any other gospel. Fully half of the material in Luke is unique to his gospel. Where Matthew presents the teaching in discourse blocks, remember that, those five big discourses in Matthew where Matthew's trying to show Jesus' teaching is, is superseding the teaching of um, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, Numbers and Deuteronomy, the, the five books of Moses. Now we have the five teachings of Jesus in these big discourse blocks. Um, Luke is doing something different. Luke scatters teaching throughout his gospel, usually in smaller units. Many key discourses happen in meal scenes, which recall the Greek symposium where a respected teacher presents wisdom. So rather than going, Jesus is better than Moses, what, what he's saying is Jesus is better than the philosophers who sit around at meals and give you little bits of wisdom. Jesus is doing that, but he's doing that on a much higher plane. So let's talk about who Luke is. Who is this guy? He's called a beloved physician by Paul. Um, again, he's a companion of Paul. Um, it likely means he's more of a pharmacist, herbalist, or homeopath in his day. He's not working at Conway Regional doing surgeries, okay? That's, that just, that's not exactly. Very well trained, but he's more of a homeopath. He's, he's, he's able to kind of think through and diagnose and, and, and work with um, homeopathic remedies is what he's really doing. He, he was not an eyewitness of the life of Christ, but he says he does careful research to write the account in an orderly fashion. I'm going to pull that apart in just a little bit. His literary style and his genius really shows he's a very highly educated man in how he, how he does the research and connects it historically and how he puts all of this together. He was a companion of Paul, a close companion of Paul, and is in all likelihood writing the gospel and the book of Acts to show God's involvement in Paul's mission to the Gentiles, which is a new turn in what God is doing. We know he's a companion of Paul because in the book of Acts, there are these we passages. Uh, when Paul starts his missionary journeys in chapter 13, at one point they pick up Luke. And then Luke will describe it. We went here, then we went here, then we went here. And then all of a sudden, you know Luke stays behind because he said, then they went to Antioch. Then they went to Caesarea Philippi. Um, he goes, they, and then all of a sudden they'll go, we, because now Luke has joined them again. Um, Luke is a companion of Paul, but not just a traveling companion. 
Um, he is a supporter of Paul, and that really runs the agenda of, of Luke and Acts. It's showing the legitimacy of this mes- mission to the Gentiles, tying it into the Old Testament. The Old Testament highlighted God's heart for the, for the Gentiles. Jesus had a heart for the Gentiles, and now Paul is carrying out that mission. Um, who was Luke's original audience? This is really interesting. Luke was writing to a man named Theophilus, a real guy, a real person. He's called most excellent Theophilus. This term indicates that he was probably some sort of government official, this most excellent. It's kind of a titleish term. He had high social rank. His, his name means lover of God. And at one level, this gospel is written for everyone who loves God. But Theophilus was a real guy. As a wealthy person, he was probably the patron who's funding Luke's research and writing. Um, That is in all likelihood what's going on. He's wanting to do this, and he's found a young Christian who's excited about this work, who has some means, and he is supporting Luke in that work. That's who he's writing to, Theophilus. But he's aware, I'm writing this for Theophilus because he's funding this, but I understand other people are going to read this and other people are going to need it. We don't know where Theophilus lived. He appears to have been a fairly recent convert to Christianity. Although a real person, he represents the need for recent converts of all time to have an account of the life of Christ which provides reliable content and results in confidence about their faith. This young model person of a convert to Christianity, he's wanting, okay, give me the details so I know for certainty and show me what I'm supposed to do with it. That's what he's doing here. When was it written? Well, Almost everybody, we'll get to this when we get to Acts, almost everybody believes that Acts was written during Paul's uh, first Roman imprisonment during the early 60s. Paul's going to die mid to late 60s. Um, He's going to go on a mission trip to Spain after his Roman imprisonment. Um, The end of the book of Acts says this, Paul's in prison and he's preaching the gospel unhindered. Okay, That's Acts middle to early, early to middle 60s. Um, It seems certain that the gospel of Luke is written prior to that. So Luke is going to be written either late 50s or early 60s because it's going to be written before Acts because he's, what he's doing is he's writing Jesus and then showing how everybody follows in those steps. Where were he and his readers? Luke seems to be writing from Rome where Paul is imprisoned. He's waiting for Paul's day in court. Um, his patron, Theophilus, is somewhere else, and, it may, and it's very likely that Luke is writing for him while at the same time composing a report for future generations. Uh, I'm going to read some things from Scott Duvall. These are super helpful. Luke's purpose in his gospel connects directly to his purpose in Acts. They go together. Luke Acts. Ask my wife. It's Luke Acts together. In this two-volume work, he explains the grand plan of God through Jesus Christ and his church. He writes to instruct Theophilus and others like him so that they may know the certainty of the things they have been taught. It gives you confidence. In other words, Luke Acts presents a discipleship manual for new believers coming from a pagan background and living in a culture that is either indifferent or hostile to the Christian faith. Sound relevant? Luke Acts is written to provide a discipleship manual for believers who are living in a culture that's not sympathetic to them. That's exactly what we need. He says it this way, the gospel of Luke speaks to us about who Jesus is and how we should live as his disciples. We need this gospel. We need this message. So 
How's it organized? I've given you an outline that's in the bulletin. I would put it maybe this way a little bit more simply. Um, He starts with the birth of Jesus and ties that to fulfillments from the Old Testament. That first four chapters is just full of like it was said in the Old Testament, like it was said in the Old Testament. The preparation for his ministry, um, his baptism, his temptation, um, continues all of this fulfillment of the Old Testament. As you're going to see in just a minute, um, it happens really subtly, but you're going to see in just a minute, Mary's Magnificent in chapter 1 is patterned after Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. After his preparation, he, he conducts this ministry in Galilee where he becomes wildly popular, but the opposition starts. Then there is him framing the journey to Jerusalem. In all likelihood, Jesus takes 12 trips to Jerusalem in the course of his ministry. Um, three times a year, he probably would have gone down there. Luke kind of frames all of those trips together in one trip and shows the growing opposition and the training of the disciples until we arrive in Jerusalem in chapter 19, and then we get the Passion Week where Christ is, is tried, pronounced innocent three times, still crucified, resurrected from the dead, and then he commissions his disciples. The literary genius of the book is phenomenal. Here's just one example of it. Um, The book begins with people terrified, and it ends with people terrified. Um, There's reading scripture and being explained at the beginning. It's being interpreted at the end. Um, People are waiting at the beginning. People are waiting at the end. The Holy Spirit empowers Mary, and the Holy Spirit empowers the disciples. He, how, how this thing begins, the life of Jesus, is how it ends as the message is being handed over to his disciples to take to the world. Um, on the chart that's at the Connection Center and online, um, I've highlighted a couple things. One of them, uh, two of them, I'm going to go over here uh, in just a minute, how, how Luke and Acts frame the gospel to the world in, in slightly different ways. Um, the outcasts and how he reaches to these people you would not expect, by the way, including children. We had a baptism. Uh, gosh, it was so great. I, I just, I wish we could do that. <laughs> I wish we could play the videos of them somehow. Um, but a baptism uh, uh, of Amelia Duffield this morning. Um, Jesus reaches out to children like that. Um, Luke also, in his prologue, which I'm going to highlight, really gives you what he's doing. Luke, Luke tells you at the beginning, as you'll see next week, John doesn't tell you what he's doing till the end. Luke tells you at the beginning. In the middle is this journey to Jerusalem where, where Jesus knows opposition's coming, I'm going to die, but I'm training you guys when I die to take my message around the world. That's what's going on here. So what is the message of Luke? After careful investigation... Luke wrote to Theophilus, a Gentile believer, providing him with the facts of Jesus' life, ministry, teaching, death, and resurrection, as predicted in the Old Testament, a fulfillment of all of that, in order to encourage him, Theophilus, and us, that his faith in Jesus was ordained by God through the Holy Spirit and was consistent with the universal offer of salvation to all people as presented by Christ and entrusted to his disciples who would carry that message to the world. Um, That's Luke. I can simplify that a little bit and put it this way. Jesus Christ is the predicted fulfillment of God's plan to rescue all people. That's what Luke and and Acts both go together to say. How that works is in covering the gospel of, uh, of Jesus and covering his life, his ministry, his teaching, his training, 
Luke is going to consistently reach back into the Old Testament and show how all of these Old Testament predictions are being fulfilled by Jesus, as was said in the Old Testament, as was said in the Old Testament, as was said in the Old Testament. He's going to quote, and especially from Isaiah. But he's also going to look forward to the mission that we are given in the book of Acts to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, the mission to go to the world. So it really is Jesus's life connected to the Old Testament and um, thrust forward into the book of Acts, which is us taking this message of salvation for all people. Everyone should be introduced to this. Um, The introductions to Luke and Acts parallel each other, and and they mention this Theophilus guy. Um, I'm going to come back to the, the... introduction to Luke in a minute, but here's what it says. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now here's Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, he's talking about Luke. He said, I wrote about all the things Jesus began to do and teach. And what Acts is going to do is show you what Jesus is continuing to do and what he taught us to do. Um, Putting this together in terms of what's going on, it's fascinating. In Luke, the gospel message moves from Galilee to Jerusalem, from north to south, reaching all people vertically up and down the social scale. As Jesus ministers, he doesn't go very far. Um, really, it's, it's less than 100 miles. But through his ministry, he's reaching out to all people, rich, poor. Way better than me reading seven verses, huh? Um, keep watching The Chosen. I'll let you know if I think they go off the rails. Dawn and I just watched episodes four and five uh, on Friday. Gosh, just so good. Keep reading um, or keep watching. Um, I can't show the whole thing, so hold on as I try to get through a hunk of what Jesus uh, does in the Gospel of Luke. He starts his ministry in chapter 4. Here's how it begins. Jesus returned to Galilee after his baptism and temptation in the power of the Spirit. News about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the, school, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. First of all, he's reading from Isaiah 61. That's very clear. He's reading from Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 has a blending of first coming and second coming passages. Jesus only reads the first coming passages, and he doesn't read the second coming passages. So Jesus is letting you know, I'm only here to do part of what the Old Testament predicted was was happening. So this is how his ministry starts, and he's gathering disciples, and he's becoming more and more popular. As his disciples gather around him, and they're seeing who he is, he eventually decides to take this journey to Jerusalem. In chapter 9, it says, as as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. 
As he sets out for Jerusalem, two things are going to happen. The key central section of Luke's gospel shows how Jesus experiences rejection and prepares his disciples for his departure. Two things happen, growing opposition and hostility and extensive teaching on discipleship. Basically, Jesus is going, see how they're opposing me and there's hostility towards me? That's going to happen for you, but still follow me and continue to take this message around the world. The opposition grows, and he sent messengers on ahead and went into Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. The, the opposition is growing. It continues to grow. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to the, eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. They're watching him. Then they're trying to trap him. You'll see that in just a minute. There in front of them was a man suffering from an abnormal swelling in his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and ex experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. They knew that it was a trap. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked, if one of you had a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? They had nothing to say. They were watching him, trying to trap him, but he's, he's getting away. In the midst of all of that, he's talking to them about the cost of discipleship. Um, people are coming up and saying, hey, we want to follow you. And he does say, follow me, but they're in the middle. Uh, follow me. But the person replies, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury the dead. Uh, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This is the most important thing you could do in your life. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. There's going to be opposition, but you have to prioritize this. And then there's the setting of the trap. The, the, the opposition is not just trying to catch him. Now they're intentionally trying to do it. Keeping a close watch on him, the leaders, the religious leaders, sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and the authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do, do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This is going to get him in trouble, either with the Jews or the, or the Romans. Paying taxes to Caesar, Jews don't like that. Not paying taxes to Caesar's, Caesar, Romans don't like this. Trick question, there's no way out unless you're Jesus. He saw through their duplicity and he said to them, show me a denarii. Whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. The message here is not pay your taxes. The message here is the image of Caesar is on the coin, so give the money to Caesar. But God's image is on you. Give yourself to God. Who, whose image is on the coins? Give him the coins. Whose image is on you? Give yourself to him. That's his teaching, and that's why they had nothing to say. It silences the critics. They're unable to trap him in what he said. Uh, they're in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Jesus is, is able to just work his, 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 his wisdom through all of this. But at one point, he steps over a line. At daybreak, the council of elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, I tell you, you will not, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you wouldn't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. 
He's referring to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, where it's clearly an allusion to um, a messianic figure who is divine. They all ask, are you then the son of God? He replied, you say, you say that I am, and you're right, just not in the way you expect. <laughs> then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his lips. Um, and from there, even though he's tried three times and pronounced innocent, he still willingly has set up his own crucifixion, willingly allows himself to die for us, and then he is raised on the third day, which he predicted, but nobody understood. Even those who were close to him didn't understand it. And women are the first witnesses to the resurrection. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away uh, from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of Jesus. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and others with them who told this to the, to the, to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because the words seemed like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb, bending over. He saw the strips of linen laying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. They're still trying to put all of this together. Um, they realize he's raised from the dead. He teaches them and commissions them again. And then finally he ascends up into heaven. And basically this ministry in the ascension is once he is in heaven, we are carrying out this message, getting it to everybody, doesn't matter what they're like or where they are. We're taking that message to them and he is interceding for us in heaven as we do that. So where does all this fit? The gospel is the first volume of Luke's two-volume work, Luke-Acts, which functioned together to justify and support the missionary work of his companion, the Apostle Paul. Luke ties the work of Paul's Gentile mission back to Jesus' inclusive offer of salvation to all people and connects that to the Old Testament promises. Luke puts Old Testament, Jesus, and what we do all together. Luke also looks forward to the ministry of Jesus' disciples in taking the message of Jesus' saving work to everyone, everywhere. Jesus trained his followers for this mission. So what should we believe? Jesus is the Messiah, Christ, the long-awaited Savior promised in the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of all of this. He opens the door for all people, especially those who are outcasts in the world and looked down upon by influential and religious hypocrites. Because he opens the door to them, we should stop being judgmental on people we normally say outcast, beneath us, sinners. That's who Jesus loved and who he came for. Jesus' followers have been trained and charged with taking the message of salvation by grace, accomplished by the finished work of Jesus, to a world that needs that message. So how should we behave? Accept the provision of salvation in Jesus. He's the only one who provides it. Love those around you, especially the outcasts and the irreligious people. Love irreligious people. Don't judge them. Share the message of the gospel of grace in spite of any opposition you might face. Next steps. What do we do with all this? Pretty clear. This is a relevant gospel. Repent of your sinful, self-centered self-sufficiency, the religious leaders of the time, and humbly turn to Christ. Your religion, your, your morality, that's not even who Jesus came to. They are the ones who oppose Jesus. Turn from all self-sufficiency, humbly turn in full submission to Christ. And learn to imitate the, imitate the lifestyle of Jesus and embrace the call of discipleship 
and disciple-making. Follow him and make disciples of him. Father, thank you for this clear, resounding message. Lord, I pray that you would um, compel us to follow closely in the steps of your son and to do what he trained us and commissioned us to do, and that is take the gospel to everyone everywhere. Amen.